Hey, Will, like I normally do, I just want to take a moment to tell our listeners to make sure they hit us up on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you might see us. Make sure you're sending us something. Also, you can email us directly at AppalachiaMeetsWorld at gmail.com. If you get a moment, shoot us a line, give us some feedback. Yeah, and wherever you listen to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to Appalachia Meets World. It just helps our podcast, but it also helps you know when we're releasing a new episode. Families are built, villages, towns. In Dominica, there's a there's like a motto, Après bon Dieu, c'est la terre. It's like, after God, there is the earth. So I think it's like a lot of being grounded or the importance of place to be built. Appalachia Meets World, podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. And don't forget, Will, tonight's episode is powered by SOAR. Shaping our Appalachian region. If you're an entrepreneur out there, especially in eastern Kentucky, check them out. Appalachian Meets World, we're back after the live episode. It's Will. And Neil, what's up? Hey, uh, nothing. Last week, last week was a good one. You, I, I know we didn't post it, but if anybody wants to check it out, they can go to Facebook Live and re-watch the live episode from the Kentucky Mountain Law Festival. Yeah, it was a great episode. We enjoyed all of our guests that we had on. Um, some of them were family, some of them were not. But anyway, it was an opportunity to highlight the Kentucky Mountain Laurel Festival, a 91st edition, and I couldn't have been more proud of the city of Pineville last week. So, on to this week. On to this week. What's going on there? Not too much. Hanging out in the 606, trying to fit in all the activities that we do. Uh, Let's get into a few... Appalachian news topics. How about that? Let's do it. Did you see, I guess it's a couple of weeks ago now, the, I'm not a big American Idol watcher. I don't, you know, you don't, know, I don't really this. watch it. Haven't watched it in a long time, but two of the three top finalists were from Appalachia. Yeah. My wife still keeps up with it on a regular basis. So yeah, I was, I was tuned into that. And the winner, of course, being a Kentucky guy. How cool is that? That is awesome. Louisa, Kentucky. Noah Thompson. For the yeah. listeners that don't know of how small Louisa, Kentucky is. That's what I was getting ready to say. And all the immense talent that comes out of there, not only from a musical standpoint, but in all walks of life, I can name people from Louisa that have done really well. It's crazy. But even that area, I guess it's the country music highway, <laughs> which we've talked about before on the show. But yep. what I found appealing of his story is that his buddy that he works with, I think he worked construction, maybe drywall. drywall. So his buddy is the one that, that basically forced him to audition. He basically signed him up and said, Hey, guess what? I signed you up for American Idol. You got to go. Hey, you know, I was thinking about that. His buddy's got to have a good ear, you know? I mean, think (laughs) about it. You're sitting there, you're sitting there in random house in Louisa listening to your buddy sing. And you're like, I don't know if it's the acoustics in here because of my good drywall <laughs> or if you can really sing, but I gotta, I gotta find out. <laughs> I don't know about his ear, but I know he should have a job for the rest of his life. Absolutely. If Noah really hits it big, his buddy should be his manager should yeah. be his right hand man. 
whatever the case may be, he should take him along for the ride. He better he better get him on payroll somehow. <laughs> for sure. What what a great story though. I mean, the guys, he's a young guy and he's he's working in Louisa doing drywall. He goes to American Idol in in Hollywood wins a singing competition nationwide can you imagine it would be like us winning a grammy for the for this podcast well i mean i mean in past episode yeah <laughs> you just caught that didn't you? yeah yeah i did but but you know we mentioned in, in this spot in this on episodes before in regards to opportunity just yeah. having that opportunity i mean growing up where we're from you don't even imagine opportunities like that or wow. you know making it to hollywood to winning american idol that's just not something you fathom but just it just goes to show that you know the hills and hollers are loaded with talent just give us an opportunity and let us make with it what we will the world has definitely got more accessible for the hills and the hollers and i think you'll continue to see more and more talent come out of the hills and the hollers because that's where it's all hidden will Definitely a newsworthy story there. I'm glad you mentioned that. This is not an Appalachian issue. This is a U.S. issue, but if inflation, man. Have you gone to the store and has Maddox raised his price of eggs yet? No, but it's coming. Oh, my I mean, gosh. We're going to have to kick it up because it takes me $10 to get to the store to get some crates to keep the eggs in. What is wrong with the world? I don't know. Inflation isn't crazy. I got some sticker shock at the grocery store the last time I went. Eggs are up, milk's up, everything's up. Yeah, I don't really know where we're going with this. One thing that it also, you know, seeps into when you're paying that much for utilities, when you're paying that much for groceries, when you're paying that much in regards to inflation for extra expensive, housing costs in general are rising as well. It's hard to find affordable housing anymore. This is not just an Appalachian crisis. This is an American crisis. I saw some numbers. The median U.S. home value is right now, as of last month, 425000 It's a record high. That's just, yeah. a, that's just an average. And rents increased 11, over 11% 11 in 2021. Yeah, it's really incredible. There are some people doing well in the housing market, but it's the the folks that are looking for that housing that are suffering. I mean, yeah, you know, I mentioned 425,000 with inflation rates that we mentioned with rising interest rates that that price will probably go down over time. The market might adjust itself, but I saw even if it dropped by 100,000, say it went down to 325,000, 60% of households still would be priced out. Oh my gosh. Wow, that's an interesting stat. Say that again. Even if it dropped $100,000, still 60% of all households would be priced out of the market. That makes zero sense. We got to do something about that. I think Mayor Maiden mentioned it in, in last week's episode about housing supply and housing scarcity in his area of Appalachia. Mm -hmm. But it's not, like I said, it's not just the Appalachia problem. It's an American problem. One in seven spent half of their income on housing. No state in the entire country, if you were making minimum wage, could you afford a two-bedroom rental? Wow. Yeah, above minimum wage. 
Minimum wage is next to nothing. But if you were making $22 an hour, you would have to work 73 hours a week just to be able to afford that two-bedroom rental. Unbelievable, Will. Where are we going? I don't know. I, I think that gets us to a new segment that we want to bring into the podcast. Yeah. A Q&A, question and answer. We would love for our listeners to send us a question every week for us to answer, whether it be about us, whether it be about Appalachia, whatever the case may be. If we don't get questions from the listeners, Neil and I will ask each other questions, which is what we'll have to start off this week with. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this new segment, Will, the question of the week segment. You can ask whatever you want. It's Ask Anything Friday, I guess, and uh, you ask the questions and we will provide an answer. I love it. Like it or not, you'll get an answer. I I love it. So obviously we just started it. I have a question of the week for you, Neil. All right. I get to go first. I, so I get to give the first answer is the way I look at it. You get to give the first answer. And I'm, I'm curious as to your answer to this, uh, considering your capitalist background, but, um, (laughs) it's going to be off the top of my head. I'm sure as usual. Absolutely. Um, But the question I have this week, And it relates to what we've been talking about in regards to affordable housing. Being able to live in an affordable, safe, and sanitary home, do you consider that a human right? Or should housing be subject to the free market? You're not going to like my answer. No, there's no right or wrong, I guess. Okay, good. People have opinions, obviously. You know what I'm going to say then. I do. You know I'm going to say it's up to the free market. And, you know, whether you like it or not, I feel like it's not a it's not a a God given right to to have housing in general. That's something that the, uh, you know, part of the American dream. Right. As children, we grow up in America. We we get an education. uh, We try our best to get a a job and provide for our family. and, And then we have to utilize that education and that job and that uh, economic piece that goes along with that job to to try to uh, establish a home for our family. And yes, right now, it, it, the affordability of, of decent housing is scarcity, but it's still not a right. You know, we, we've got to we've got to earn that on our own. You know, it might require some people changing their life. It might require moving to a different area it might require a lot of sacrifice but that's what this country was built on will it's what appalachia was built on i don't disagree with a lot of what you're saying however with the housing prices where they are you know our legislators our public policy defenders need to come up with creative ways to make housing more affordable so people can achieve that American dream. You know, there's a number of things that they can do. And we talk about scarcity and we talk about price, but, you know, first they could look at legislation to encourage more building of affordable housing. That's key in in a lot of areas. And, you know, a lot of times that comes down to changing the zoning, adding some inclusionary zoning, more density, maybe accessory dwelling units. A lot of people, a lot of places don't allow for that. Uh, which are ADUs or kind of like the mother-in-law, you know, r- rentals, the, the granny flats. Um, our what, Will? Our, our ADUs. Accessory dwelling units. 
Okay, great. I'm glad you explained that for all <laughs> yeah. our listeners. Or more, you know, changes to legislation for more micro housing. It's really a case by case basis wherever you are. But a lot of these, a lot, a lot of this can be changed by legislation just to allow at this moment in time for more housing. There are areas that don't even allow for rental units. Most of it's zoned for single family homes. And we could, we could get rid of some of that to allow just to, to allow more affordable housing to be built. So I totally agree with that statement. And as I answered my question at not being a human right, I didn't say that things couldn't be done to make it different. Exactly. So, you know, I totally agree with you that uh, our legislatures and our, our leaders in this country have got to put some things aside and, and, and make some smart, wise, common sense decisions that benefit us all. Smart thing that that a lot of, a lot of places could do is really partner with these nonprofit developers, these faith based developers that develop affordable housing. Having that partnership, providing subsidies to build and encourage the building of affordable housing is key. And when when I was in D.C., I worked for the Department of Housing and Community Development, which their primary objective or goal was to promote policy and fund affordable housing throughout the District of Columbia. You know, it's easy to see a problem of affordable housing in, the, in a city like D.C. When I lived there, there was homelessness on every corner. There were shelters. There, were, there was a push for permanent supportive housing, transitional housing. The rents were sky high, which they still are. There were density issues throughout the city. In Appalachia, you know, that issue, it's harder to see, but it's becoming, as we talked about, in the, in, you know, an increasing concern throughout the region. When people look at Appalachia, you know, they think poverty, lower class, and just assume that all our ho- housing is, quote, affordable. But really, you know, that's not the case, as we've seen with little to no housing stock in, in, in some of the even the smaller rural areas. That's also the case in larger cities throughout Appalachia. In a 2020 study, Chattanooga was seventh among uh, the 100 largest cities in regards to overall overall increase in rents over the last year. Asheville, North Carolina, housing prices are astronomical. People that actually, you know, the economy is based on tourism. Tourism typically has lower paying jobs, but the people that, that work there can't actually live there because can't, they can't afford the homes in Asheville. You know, even though we talk about on this show, Appalachia, Appalachia, smaller cities, Appalachia, bigger cities. This is not just an Appalachian problem. This is an American problem in regards to affordable housing. And I just wanted to point that out because the guest that we have tonight is an expert in this area of affordable housing and affordable housing development. I'm glad you brought that up, Will. I'm glad you led into that because we're sitting here talking about affordable housing like we're the experts. We are not the experts, but we do have an expert on board, and I'm looking forward to to, to speaking to Layla and, and asking her some interesting questions about the affordable housing market and just where she thinks we're headed. How about we just get into it? Let's do it. On tonight's episode, we have a special guest, Layla Finucane, 
She is a lawyer by trade, but has spent most of her professional career in community development, lending, and the affordable housing space. She spent time in, in community development in the banking industry, nearly four years as the director of the DC Department of Housing and Community Development. She was the director of the National Initiatives for NeighborWorks, which, which is a national leader in the affordable housing and community development space. And now she is the president and CEO of Victory Housing, an award-winning nonprofit developer of quality affordable housing in the DC area. So Layla, we wanted to welcome you to the show and thank you for being on. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for thank you for inviting me to do this and great to be chatting with you again, Will. That's well, Neil knows this, I guess, that you worked at DHCD with me. So that was that was great all those years ago. So kind of amazing to watch the the grown-up version here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not so sure he's there yeah. yet, Layla. <laughs> yeah, we mentioned that a little bit in the intro. Before we get started, we wanted to ask you a question that we ask all our guests. It's a very serious question. Very serious. Uh, at least it is in our household. Um, so as Appalachians are big on history, our family is big on history and traditions as well. And one of the traditions we have, we have appetizers at the holidays, usually a huge spread of appetizers, more appetizers than the actual meal. So we wanted to ask you, Layla, what is your favorite appetizer or just holiday dish? Hmm. Okay, so my favorite appetizer, I would have to say is actually anything potato samosas french fries roasted potatoes anything like that is actually my favorite thing to have before which potato skins potato skins all that sour cream or no sour cream uh well it used to be sour cream but then i i stopped having any dairy so now it's no sour cream but i'm uh, patatas bravas the spanish tapas is like my absolute favorite Um, nice and that's with like hot sauce and it's almost like sour cream is it's like mayonnaise they put aioli they put on it so that's actually awesome sounds delicious yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i will ask straight fry crinkle fry or curly fry uh straight i like the steak cut the yeah. oh yeah, nice yeah 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 okay now that we have that question out of the way layla one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on the show Aside from your incredible expertise in the affordable housing space, you know, you, you come from an urban environment, have worked a lot in, D, in the D.C. area, especially, and a lot of your work is focused in that urban environment. You know, a lot of the people that we have on the show and a lot of the guests that we have and the, the issues that we talk about on this show are kind of in the rural space, but we wanted to get an urban perspective and see how it compares to rural in regards to affordable housing and see what, if the challenges are the same and some of the solutions are the same, but we just wanted to get your perspective and saying that, can you kind of just give the listeners a little bit about your background, your history in the affordable housing space and community development space? Sure. I've started in community development from from being a lawyer. So I was a real estate attorney and then became, a, I went to a nonprofit to do affordable housing community development. And one of the major issues at the time, this was back in, it's a while ago, 2001, 2002. I think a lot of the issues that were emerging then were around um, anti-predatory lending and issues that people were having with home ownership. 
and the same issues, some of the same issues that we have today, are like trying to find ways to have good quality, affordable housing in cities where the prices were going up. So we focused, I worked for a group called Seco, and we actually worked a lot in the DC, New York, but also in Memphis, um, another urban area, Alabama, but the urban, we did focus on the urban areas in those places and did a lot of work on anti-predatory lending, which actually we sort of saw it, I guess it was like pre the, the housing crash, but you know, people were starting to have issues and a lot of this was really impacting people who were middle income, moderate income, low income, who were um, basically already starting to see a lot of foreclosures and losing their home and uh, basically losing their opportunities. For a lot of people, that is like, you know, that's what you build your, your wealth on and your opportunity for your kids. So that's why I started. And then I ended up, st- got into uh, working with low income housing tax credits and investing and lending which the low-income housing tax credit tool is actually one of the biggest drivers for affordable housing or investment sources, like funding sources for affordable housing in the country. So I think a lot of people, when you're working in affordable housing and rental housing space, a lot of us get pulled into that that industry and that space. And I originally was at a, a bank doing it. And then at the bank also worked with a lot of CDFIs, which are community development financial institutions, and those focus on trying to bring those resources and lend them to people who large banks otherwise wouldn't. After, after doing that for a while, I, I ended up running the DC's Department of Housing and Community Development, which is, that's actually a good example of sort of like the whole range of affordable housing issues and situations that a, a, a municipality has. So DC has everything from people who need supportive housing and who are homeless and who need real um, emergency or you know almost zero I- income and just need full support to people who are middle income all the way at the other end of the, the range who are just really trying to f- purchase a home but in a city where the costs are ridiculous yeah, <laughs> the technical word <laughs> um, for the prices of, of housing in, in an area like this in DC so um, but a lot of it, the biggest core, again, was like that rental housing and financing those types of deals to provide the uh, rental housing that's affordable to people ranging from like 30% of area median income all the way to 60% of area median income, which is what the tax credit usually focuses on. There were there was a lot in there that we wanted yeah, to that's get into, saying. especially, yeah. in, you know, you mentioned the for, foreclosures after the kind of the housing crash. You, you know, with the pandemic, we, we see some of the same challenges, but as far as foreclosures, they have not increased that much because of the mm-hmm. pandemic. So it's kind of a different kind of dynamic in regards to the housing crash and what has happened with the pandemic, which we want to get into. But if we could just take a step back, just a small step back yeah. and just let the listeners know, you know, we, we hear the word affordable housing all the time. And when we think about affordable housing in D.C., it's easy to understand, you know, like you said, the rents are astronomical in D.C. And, and so when you're talking about affordability, it, it's hard to afford some of the housing prices that are in D.C. But when you talk about when you think about Appalachia, when you think about some of these rural areas and people talk about affordability, well, the majority of the people just think that everything's affordable in, mm-hmm. in Appalachia, which is not the case. So can no. you 
just define what affordable housing is, the federal definition, I guess, and kind of what it should be? Okay, so yes, the, the federal definition or like affordable housing is the, the concept, it should be housing that doesn't cost more than 30% of your income. That That's what affordable should be. And they call that like cost burdened if you're paying more than 30% of your income on housing. So if you're making $1,000 a month and you're paying more than $300 that if you're paying more than that, that would be cost burdened. And I think there's statistics, any area you can actually look up, like in your area, you can see what, who's cost burdened. So you can see how many people are paying more than 50% of their income on housing, how many people are paying like 30%. So that's where it starts. There's also like the concept of it or the perception, I guess you could say. And I think that it includes everything from public housing where like the government's actually building and maintaining the housing to like getting a voucher, like a section eight voucher. So somebody has a voucher, they have access to affordable housing um, or like the type of housing that we focus on building, which is, again, it's, well, we use different programs. We use the tax credit program, the HUD 202 program, because we have a lot of senior housing. It's housing that's basically designed to be affordable to people at 60% of area median income and below. And for us, we focus on a lot on the 40 and the 30% of area median income. Because in a place like DC, the in the DC metro area, the income levels really high. And I feel like, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but affordable housing, I feel like other things should be thrown in there just besides mm-hmm. rent, like utilities, like transportation, things. All that should fall under the 30%, if you ask me, but, you know. That's a great, I mean, we actually worked on, um, I think there have been people, I have at different, I've worked on some projects on that, like on housing and transportation to try to get it combined. There are more ways to go on and calculate that. The utility allowances, utilities are actually, they, they should be like electric and they should be calculated in that. I think not everybody does that, but that's how you're supposed to do it. Yeah, I I know there's some back and forth in that regard, especially when it comes to transportation. But you've mentioned LIHTC or low-income housing tax credit several times. And and as far as that tool in regards to developing housing, especially in the urban environment, it's basically geared towards rental housing. And, you know, you mentioned home ownership earlier, and that's a big thing for, especially in Appalachia areas, especially in rural areas, Mm -hmm. to build that equity, to build that wealth. And in in regards to LIHTC and and your focus on rental housing, how do you push towards this building of equity, building of home home ownership when you really work in kind of the rental uh, space? It's a great question. I mean, I... So we actually, our latest project, we actually included in it, it's like a redevelopment of a three acre site in the middle of DC. One building that's 100% affordable housing for seniors. One building is like a mixed income building. So there's some market, 29 market rate units and the rest are affordable. And that one has 87 units. And then there's 10 home ownership units. And out of those 10 units, three, they have their pricing set uh, to be affordable for to somebody who's at 100% of area median income, so a household there. So in the city, the way you do it is sort of through these programs like that, like trying to build in 
some affordable homeownership into a larger project, zoning rules on like condo buildings. When DC has an inclusionary zoning program. So I think you actually may have brought that to DC when I was at the <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. we did implement that. That's that. And that's actually, so that's actually been, you know, that's probably produced more rental units, but it is producing some homeownership units as well. So like if a condo building is going up, then they have to set aside depending on where they are. Because of this scarcity of housing in regards to the to the pandemic. I've seen some areas kind of removing their inclusionary zoning just because they just need more housing. There's a big pushback. I think they're taking it out or they're putting it off site. Some ways, sometimes I think that works if it's if it's close enough to the building that's being built. Sometimes they can make that, they can fulfill their requirement nearby. The homeownership housing cost is so high. It's something that the developers, the the private developers, the for-profit developers, they don't, they don't want to lose that, that amount of, <laughs> they don't want to lose that profit. Down the line, I think what they also raised is they've said that their amenities structure, like they have so many amenities in the, in like the condo buildings that they say that the person won't be able to afford them. So really, I mean, I think for affordable homeownership, I, there's also a program in DC we have called the Tenant Opportunity Purchase Program, TOPA. And that actually has been another way for some smaller buildings where people have been able to establish low-income housing co-ops or limited equity co-ops by themselves or also condos. They've been sort of able to buy their own building. It's different. I think like that's like a real difference between the urban and many rural settings is the idea like that you might own an apartment. My experience has been that most people outside of the city, when they think of owning something, they're not thinking of sort of like a an apartment. They're thinking of owning a, single a house, some sort of single family. We even had a, an organization on not too long ago that had a kind of a creative program for their neck of the woods. It was to build home ownership for people that lived in trailers to help That's them, mm-hmm. to help them kind of purchase their land uh, and, a great- and develop a, a home on, on where the trailer once was. That's a great program. When I was at NeighborWorks, we saw a lot in Montana and Colorado, like some really good examples where people were able to, similar to Topa, but organize in the, like a trailer, I guess a trailer park or like village, but to get, basically get people organized to the point where they would purchase the land and they did redevelop Colorado. Boulder has like a couple examples where it's, it's worked really well. So I think that's a good segue. Can we ask you about your work at NeighborWorks and you know, NeighborWorks is a national organization. Can you maybe touch on a few of the challenges that you saw in regards to affordable housing across the country and, you know, how they compared to what you're working on now in D.C.? Sure. Uh, I mean, it's, it was interesting. Like at NeighborWorks, I saw really different situations all across the country. And I think like D.C. has D.C. has a lot of tools and I could like for affordable housing, which I think when you're in DC, a lot of people sort of felt like, oh, we need another tool or we need another another way to do this. It's not being done enough. But I think this area like DC, Maryland, like Montgomery County, especially, there's just a lot of tools like in place and people doing things. I think I saw in other places that they had a lot fewer of those, but it was surprising to me 
which ones had more. So like Montana, I actually, at the time, I, I was really impressed by how even though they had all these distances to travel, that they really they really had like a good system and they were, they were trying a lot of different things. And Missoula, University of Montana, Missoula, like they had a lot of really innovative projects, community gardens, things that they had done, terrain farms, but just a totally different terrain. And then I think the home ownership thing was a big I wouldn't say it was a divide, but it was definitely some areas only wanted to focus on home ownership and some only wanted to focus on rental. And then you had some that were really trying to deal with with everything. But did you see gentrification as an issue nationwide? I mean, obviously, it's a huge issue in D.C. and and always has been, I think. Uh, Yes, I I think so. I have a. (laughs) I think my perspective, I sometimes I think it's sometimes gentrification, although sometimes I think what I'm seeing is redevelopment. I think that redevelopment has to happen. But what you are seeing a lot of and we saw then and we're seeing now is a lot of sort of people just being priced out. So you have areas that are just becoming so, so expensive, you know, Boulder, most of the cities in California, even I mean, small downtown areas you see that there's just a general issue that once the markets heat up prices get really high and a lot of times the policies sort of push it so that the very wealthy stay and then maybe the very very like the homeless shelters or the very very poor and I think the people in the middle and the the lower income like the lower middle class and the middle class if you put it like I think they get squeezed a lot. I think you see that a lot in the urban environment throughout mm-hmm. Appalachia, like in Asheville or in Chattanooga. Mm-hmm. Some of some of those areas, a, a lot of like a lot of the workers. Obviously, the economy is based around tourism in mm-hmm. Asheville, and so their wages don't match the housing prices in Asheville, and therefore exactly. they're kind of squeezed out. And the workers that work in Asheville have to live outside the city in order to afford a place to live. Yeah. No. Exactly. And actually. I think that's a big issue and that's what you see. And I, I mean, one of the things that I always felt and I still feel, I think the ideal is to have it so that you have a real diverse set of housing opportunities so that people can live close to where they work. And then you have a more balanced community that way. A lot of times, I think in the really wealthy areas, you also get like a kind of a culture of like people are flying in, maybe like they're, they're coming in, they're staying or there's a lot of Airbnbs or like they're doing, you know, they're not necessarily, they're not necessarily invested in the, the day to day. A lot of second homes. I mean, I even see that in DC sometimes now, like people clearing out like at certain times. And I mean, DC almost naturally is like that because of the the government people are flying in from other parts of the country anyway, but they're not necessarily as invested in it. I'm enjoying your all's uh, geeked up affordable housing conversation. <laughs> I'm uh, sorry. Normal people over here. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so Layla, where, where are you from? That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I am from a few different places. So my dad's from Pennsylvania. My mom's from Dominica in the Caribbean. So um, I was actually born in Zambia and then moved to Dominica, and then about seven and a half, eight years old, moved to the States, to Maryland, and then ended up living in South America a few years after, and then went to boarding school. So that's why I was laughing. You said I, I, I'm from a number of different places. It sort of depends on where, States, where I am. In the States, you've always lived on the East Coast? 
Yes. In the States, I'm mostly familiar with uh, D.C., Maryland, obviously, Pennsylvania, uh, Massachusetts. I went to boarding school at Massachusetts and then I went to college in Philadelphia. So, okay. yeah. So you mentioned that you worked in real estate law. In New York City. That's right. <laughs> so. Okay. What what was the driving force behind you uh, wanting to get into the affordable housing area, market, whatever you want to call it? I've always been interested in cities and like neighborhoods or just places and how people make them. So check like the geeked up conversation about affordable housing. <laughs> I, when I was in college, I, I um, my last year of school, I took a class in uh, the history of city planning and then I took a class in urban law and those two things sort of, I was like, wow, this is, this is like an amazing history of, of how people do things, but also a very practical way um, to try to make an impact. That's where I kind of went from there. Even when I did law, when I was doing real estate law, I knew I wanted to go into community development and affordable housing. I'm a, I'm a real estate guy too. And uh-huh. uh, Until you heard this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm a big believer in investing in dirt. I was just curious what kind of led you in that direction. Yeah, this is how families are built, villages, towns. In Dominica, there's a there's like a motto, après bon Dieu c'est la terre. It's like after God there is the earth. So I think it's like a lot of being grounded or the importance of place to people. Listen, I think everybody spends their life in real estate. You have to live somewhere and like that's what you hope that everybody could have is control over their resources and their space and like to, a chance to influence it. I don't, I, I think that more people should find real estate interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, I find it very interesting. It's just, um, it takes a lot of money. To that point, you know, in regards to affordable housing, most affordable housing projects will not work without some type of subsidy, um, That's right. whether it be federal, whether it be local. We've seen from the pandemic, this new emergence of housing scarcity throughout the country. It's, it's a big issue, especially in rural areas. There's just not enough housing stock. And, you know, the American Rescue Plan or ARPA, a lot mm-hmm. of those funds came in, but people kind of have looked at those as as a Band-Aid, not a long-term fix. So just what are some of the policies that you've seen? You know, you mentioned inclusionary zoning, fair housing, rent control. What are some of the policies you've seen in regards to addressing kind of that scarcity? As far as fair housing strategies, they're different in in every state. And in the Mm -hmm. state of Ohio, the, the city of Cincinnati actually has fair housing strategy for Appalachian immigrants. Interesting. When they first moved into the city of Cincinnati, there was a bias against them and people would not rent to mm-hmm. people from Appalachia in the big city of Cincinnati. That That's a long-winded question to just ask. If you have seen any national policies that have helped to address this scarcity issue? I mean, I think it's category by category almost. So for senior housing, I, I mean, I think affordable housing for seniors, is the uh, the demand is, is really great. Most seniors... When you retire on a fixed income, most people are going to at some point need this type of housing and obviously at different scales. That is something like there's a 202 program. They have 
been bringing that back or working to bring that back. It was dormant for a while. It used to give grants to nonprofits to develop senior housing, and now it, they try to pair it with the tax credits. We'll see how that goes. I mean, I think on the homelessness side, there's like a, a lot of money being put into permanent supportive housing and things like that, which actually, I think it's generally good, but I, I think the need for affordable housing is much bigger than that yeah. population. And that population really is like, a, I'll get in trouble for saying this, but I don't necessarily see that as an affordable housing issue. It's more like permanent supportive housing. Sometimes that issue through the pandemic and what we've seen is there's a lot more about mental health and addiction issues and things. And just for the listeners to let them let them know, for some that don't know, permanent supportive housing is to bring the homeless individuals into a housing unit to allow them to live, but also have services around them for those issues, like you mentioned, mental, mental health issues or other issues yeah. that they may have. Yeah. But I think the biggest programs are the gap financing programs. There was a big announcement from the federal government. Like you said, it's like it remains to be seen how that gets operationalized. I think that's one of the things that's most different or the hardest thing about affordable. Every state really ends up having their own programs. But in D.C. and in Montgomery County and Maryland in general, you're seeing a lot of funds coming in for gap financing. Again, focused on the rental housing. I, I agree. I'm now sort of I keep thinking about that. I'm trying to think of other programs for homeownership. I know D.C. is trying to do a special equity building push. I think it'll probably be successful. It's just a concept right now, but it's an idea around for racial equity because the homeownership rate in D.C. for African-Americans is so much lower than it is for the rest of the population. So they're looking at that, which kind of reminds me of what you're saying on the fair housing side there. I think I just saw the numbers nationally. Uh, I think for African-Americans, it was around, I want to say, 40 percent. For whites, it was around 75 percent. Exactly. Yes. I mean, that's a huge driver for family, generational wealth, education. That's how people finance college, all these different things. This may not be the case in D.C., but a lot of policies, you know, will focus on workforce housing, on specific Mm -hmm. groups that are living in the city, like teachers, like firefighters, government employees. They don't always focus on some of the groups that you mentioned, the seniors, the students, or just the generally poor. You mentioned the 202 program. Are there other programs that focus specifically on these groups? The nonprofits like like Victory or Volunteers of America will use those resources. And we use the tax the tax credits to build that type of housing. Workforce housing is actually sort of an emerging topic, but some people are calling that up to 120% of area median income or higher. Some people call it up to 100% or 80% and 100% of area median income. So there are funds being put towards that. And some things like in DC, there's a program with the Washington Housing Conservancy. It's a Washington housing initiative that they started, but it's it's kind of like middle market. So it's not really, it's not affordable. It's affordable housing for people who can afford a little bit more. And it's still, I'm trying to think of a way to say it. They're expecting higher returns. So one of the things about affordable housing, like when a nonprofit does it like us, it's oftentimes break even or worse. <laughs> So (laughs) over time, you can make the communities work and it's so hard to finance them and to get it started, but especially at the beginning, there's no cash flow. These new programs focused on workforce tend to have more of a demand for cash flow. There's big programs though, like Amazon. Amazon's doing a lot in uh, this area in DC and Virginia now, in Maryland even. I'm curious to know if they start getting as far as like West Virginia, you know, sort of like the DC metro area keeps keeps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting because they 
actually have brought in funds and they are actually giving those in ways like a very low interest rates to people to develop housing. So in this area, I think they're already starting to make a difference with some projects. It's interesting. In regards to the pandemic, affordable housing and just the housing crisis or the astronomical rates and, and housing prices right now, it's just outrageous. What have you seen that has kind of exacerbated that recently to, to where we are? in this current housing crisis? Has it been COVID? Is it inflation? Is it supply chain? Is it just overall lack of housing? All of the above, maybe. I think, you know, COVID pushed people from the cities and or just in general, just sort of spread people. Humans used to be really attached to their offices and their commutes. And all of a sudden, all a lot of people were like, oh, I'm going to go live in the mountains. I'm going to go live at the beach. I feel like that's had an effect. I think the other piece is the costs, you know, construction prices, COVID really impacted construction prices, lumber, everything, appliances, how people get them. I mean, we actually haven't even seen the impact of the interest rates going up. The interest rates were really low for so long. So the interest you know, rates I, have I, been an afterthought for, <laughs> for a long time. Exactly, exactly. And now I think they're going to be, I think there's going to be a next wave of people right now, or it's probably happening as we speak, who are, we're probably thinking, oh, I was going to buy this house in the next three months. And now they're probably rethinking that or having to come up with additional funds. Those types of adjustments really hit people at the, the retail level, if you will. The construction prices really hit for the rental communities and the interest rates are impacting it. So yeah, it's not going to get better, right? Like, so I'm trying to think of what what's the silver lining. Let me I'm, ask you this, yeah. you know, obviously home ownership has always kind of been the American dream. You, you think we're better off today than we were, I don't know, 50 years ago? Yes. I, I just look around. I mean, I just think like it's not been perfect, but I look at my own situation. I look at the situation of people I know and I just, yeah, it's better. I, on my dad's side, I don't think my grandmother ever owned a house. They were the ones who lived in the States. I think, you know, they were like dual family, Irish immigrants came down, you know, people work, they rented, they, they did their thing. And the question is probably, can we find a way to make the growth more equitable. And I think that's like the challenge that I I focus on and I wish more people would focus on this. So like you were talking about gentrification, like I think gentrification as a word is like that, that's pejorative, but I think redevelopment can be good. It's just how can we do this redevelopment and do it in an equitable way? So the place that I live is a little different than where you you and Will live. And the housing market is still maybe very similar in a sense. There's not enough houses to to keep up with the demand right now. So, uh, you know, housing market has been crazy the last couple of years. And what you hear here all the time is, oh, it's about to crash. It's about to crash. It's going to crash. It's going to crash. So what is your opinion on where we are as a nation and where you live versus where I live? I I think things will, I mean, definitely decelerate. So I don't think the growth is going to stop, but the interest rates and things will slow, will slow it all down. There's some people who are insulated from these types of changes. Like they, they make so much money that, or they have so much wealth that, you know, none of this impacts. So they're just going to do what they're going to do. But then there are the people who are, you know, the day to day, you know, I think COVID really put people in, people have pushed out. Like, so the DC metro area, like people are buying, they're living, they're doing things further out, Leesburg, Ashburn, Front Royal, like every, you know, it's typical when there's a crash that the core center where 
there's lots of employment and things will be more insulated than other parts. The things I'd look for, like, are there, if you're near like an employer, if you're near by army bases, it's, it's like, all, there's certain factors that insulate things from going into like the negative. It's also the quality of housing. One of the things that I think about myself and like, if I'm thinking about where I'm going to live, I always say like, I'm going to buy something, make sure it's like a really good quality. If you're going to make that kind of investment, it's got to be the kind of place that you would like to live in, even if you're not going to make money on it, if you sell like because the market it does go in cycles. I don't think home ownership is for everyone. From comparison purposes, so where I live, a, a 4,000 square foot house with an acre of land is, you know, roughly $450,000. Where you live, is that even possible? We turned three acres of land into 185 units. <laughs> so earlier when you said that, I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah, no, density is different. Yeah. But think about what you just said, though, 450,000. Like, I mean, a lot of the townhomes in D.C. would be like maybe 1,700 square feet. Or 15 like there, there's you know you can get some that are bigger and there are on the avenues you see these houses that are really big but a lot of these houses are regularly going for like 700 to over a million it's small though and you don't even get a backyard the 10 townhomes that we're doing it's two levels over two levels and the three ones that are affordable are i think going to be right around 500,000 in dc somebody can qualify to get assistance to help by that. And they're and how many square feet? I'm going to say about 1,300, 1,400. For DC, for townhome living, they're, they're a regular size. COVID allowed people to make different choices. I think the cities will always be the cities, like in people one of the year, but I think that there's like a, a chance to have an acre of land is appealing to people. Um, how do you think about it from the urban perspective? When you think about smaller rural areas, do you even think about it? Do you see some of the same challenges or is it something that you even think about when, when you're talking about challenges or even solutions? I think about it. When I was at NeighborWorks, sometimes we'd go and see places. You were talking about the, the trailer situation like the, and manufactured housing. We talked a lot with people like looking at solutions for, for rural areas that could get the housing developed, good quality, but cheaper. And, and just really one of the issues, that's why I mentioned quality. Cause I think that the housing stock, some of it is so much older in some rural areas. It's some of the similar challenges. Cause you have that here, somebody who's older, who's living in a house that they can't take care of. It's falling down around them. They got to make a decision to downsize or to move into something they can afford. And that's a hard decision. I think going to Chambersburg as a kid, like Chambersburg and like seeing different parts of, of Pennsylvania and Virginia, when I see housing that could be better or that's sort of falling down, I get worried for the people, right? So I always think like, wow, like, wouldn't it be great if someone could help people redo their houses or bring them up to code and figure it out, which I do think there are people working on things like that. And I used to, at NeighborWorks, I used to know some of them, like community housing partners, Blacksburg, like some, there's some folks who are really doing some great work, but it's hard. It's hard to reach people. And it's easier to reach people when they're all together in like a denser space. I very much appreciate your passion for affordable housing and what you're doing uh, in your neck of the woods. But I do have a question for you that we ask all of our guests. Whatever comes to mind when I say this word is what I want to hear. Just your, you know, whatever you think of first, because our podcast is focused on a particular area of the world. 
So mm-hmm. I want to know from you, what comes to your mind first when I say Appalachia? I think of the mountains, I guess. The terrain uh, is what most people say. So it's just always interesting for us to hear uh, the different opinions of of all the different folks that we're, we're talking to in and outside of Appalachia. And you mentioned earlier, you know, Neil asked where you were from, you know, you mentioned place earlier and we really ground our podcast on place and perspective. It was really largely why we started the podcast and, you know, place is very important for Appalachia. And we, this is a question we also ask all our guests. We want to ask you just where do you call home and, and what makes it home to you? What makes it unique? I think if I was to say, I'd probably dominate of all the places if I was to say where's home it's interesting it's kind of a a, it's a rainforest island it's a mountainous place and really small it is just kind of unique but it's the water and the mountains being really close together I always I was like that so still to this day like one of my favorite things to do is to go out on water somewhere look up at mountains. Well, Layla, we greatly uh, appreciate your time and, and the conversation and especially your urban perspective when it comes to affordable housing, the housing crisis that we currently have, but just that perspective and how it relates to Appalachia and how it compares to the region throughout. Thank you. And I, I hope, uh, I, I feel like we were wandering around a lot of different things. It was really good <laughs> catching up with you and talking about it. Yeah, and Neil, still, still worried about that we were geeking out too much. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. Right. Thanks so much. Appreciate okay. it. Thank you. So Neil, great interview. Great insight from Layla, not just in regards to Appalachia, but really given that urban perspective of how urban and rural areas of how some of the challenges are very similar in regards to affordable housing. Yeah, absolutely. I know I was giving you guys a hard time, but all the information that Layla shared with us was very uh, impactful. Obviously, she's done a lot of great things and continues to in the D.C. area. So I really appreciate her coming on and joining us. When When you're talking about affordable housing, it's always easier to see the need in places like the District of Columbia or the or, or that area, just because the prices are so high, the rents are so high. But when you're talking about even in smaller rural areas of Appalachia, you know, the housing stock, the scarcity is there. There's a need for affordable housing everywhere. Absolutely. And one of the things we want to have as a follow-up to this episode, Layla really touched on kind of the urban aspect of affordable housing and kind of the nationwide overall crisis that we are in. But we really want to dive a little bit deeper into Appalachia and the affordable housing crisis. We plan on having an expert in regards to affordable housing from Appalachia to really focus on that in in a future episode. Yeah, I like where we're going with this right now, Will. I think uh, this is much needed information that folks of Appalachia need to understand and, and, and know all about. So thanks to Layla. And uh, I'm looking forward to continuing more conversation in, in regards to affordable housing. Um, I did want to ask you the question. Uh, do you have a uh, app biz for us this week? I do. We've Yeah, we, we moved this segment to the end. But before you mention yours, I did want to I did want to take a moment just to highlight one that uh, we've had on the episode before. First repeat, uh, yeah, is first repeat. Last week we had a repeat guest. This week we're having a, a repeat mention of an at biz, 
Ingles Drive-In down oh, in Pine Well worth the repeat. I did want to mention that because as our way through town last weekend, we did stop by Ingles, gave them some business, and enjoyed some good old food there at uh, Ingles Drive-In on uh, Highway 25E in Pineville, Kentucky. It's just so good. You could hear, when, when I was making my order, the, the cooks in the back, you could see them. They were just waiting on what we were order, what we were getting ready to order. You could just see them, you know, making it fresh, scratch, homemade. Oh, it's just, it's so good. They were anticipating what we were ordering before we ever got it out of our mouth. And I feel like, you know, they were Johnny on the spot and getting our lunch ready. So uh, I would just tell anybody that's driving that way or driving through that neck of the woods, make sure you stop at Ingles. All right, moving on to your app biz of the week, the new app biz of the week. What do you got for me? A nonprofit housing developer. It relates to what we've been talking about tonight. So Frontier Housing out of Moorhead, Kentucky. They were founded in 1974 it, by just a few volunteers, really committed volunteers. They support. They were supported by some area churches. So it was really a faith-based nonprofit. They got together to really to provide solutions for members and families of the community who were living in unsafe, overcrowded, and unaffordable conditions. So they got together and had this idea, came up with some solutions with very little funds, but a lot of hard work, grit, and determination, which is what a lot of people in Appalachia have. They had a vision and they began doing repair work for homeowners in and around, originally in Rowan County, Kentucky. So they've been around since 1974. They've assisted over you know, thousands of families, have provided uh, housing solutions, built homes. It just do some incredible work with, you know, especially in the beginning, not a lot of funds, just some grit and determination of what they've been able to achieve over the years since 1974 has just been incredible. So I just wanted to give them a shout out, check them out. They have a website, frontierhousing.org. You can check out all that they do, all the programs that they have, all the people that they support. I just think it's important when we're talking, when we've talked about affordable housing, to talk about those nonprofit affordable housing developers, not just the work that they do, but the needs that they have. You know, we talked about it with Layla that affordable housing projects, a lot of times they're but for, they can't get developed but for some type of subsidy. So when you're thinking about, where your subsidies are going or where your dollar tax dollars are going. I think it's important to point out that a lot of times it does go to these affordable housing developers, which is an important aspect for any community, any region. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned it. I hope our listeners will follow up with action, which is uh, what we're going to ask them, ask you guys to do on a weekly basis. We talk about doers all the time on on our podcast, and there's no reason why our listeners can't be doers as well. So first piece of action for you guys needs to be check out that website Will just mentioned. And also think about a question that you might want to ask us that we can talk about next week. So ask us a question on social media 
and then we'll answer it next week. Yeah, definitely. A- any question goes. Will, as a as a mention of Appalachia and what's going on in Appalachia, I did want to point out one of our sponsors, Soar, uh, is having a summit in June. Uh, again, another mini summit that Jonathan Webb, the founder CEO of App Harvest, is going to be speaking at. So, all you listeners out there, if you haven't signed up for the Soar Summit, make sure you do so, and uh, you'll be front and center to to listen to Jonathan Webb talk about his creation of App Harvest. Yeah, that's great. Do you have the date on that, Neil? Yes, Will. Uh, it is June the twenty third and twenty fourth. And that is in Hazard, Kentucky. So mark your calendars, make, uh, go on their website, look it up, sign up today. And it's called the Focus Summit. And the keynote speaker there again is Jonathan Webb. Also a shout out to one of our other sponsors, Dave Godsey with Fairway Mortgage. If you're in the mood for a refinance, Will, or you're looking for a new home, make sure you contact Dave. His number is all over the place, but in case you don't have it and you want it, it's 606-344-8734. Dave Godsey, Fairway Mortgage. The last action item I want to leave our listeners with, if you haven't already, check us out on social media. Give us a follow. Give us a review. It's important for our podcast. Helps our podcast out. Helps you out in regards to knowing when we're releasing an episode. Absolutely. Thanks for mentioning it. I guess I can end it like I usually do. Till next time. Peace. I'm up in the mountains again. I'm getting lighter. The air's getting thin. Now I'm facing down with a grin. I've been in the city too long. Sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs. Now I'm back up where I belong in the mountains.